Hello and welcome to Dead Ideas in Teaching and Learning, a higher education podcast from the Center for Teaching and Learning at Columbia. I'm Katherine Ross, the Center's Executive Director. As a quick reminder for our listeners, in this podcast series, we are exploring dead ideas in teaching and learning. In other words, ideas that are widely believed, though not true, and that drive many systems and behaviors in connection to teaching, exercising what Diane Pike called the tyranny of dead ideas. Welcome, everyone. I'm speaking today with Dr. Michelle Miller from Northern Arizona University. Dr. Miller is a professor of psychological sciences and president's distinguished teaching fellow at Northern Arizona University. She is the author of Minds Online, Teaching Effectively with Technology, and Remembering and Forgetting in the Age of Technology, Teaching, Learning, and the Science of Memory in a Wired World. Dr. Miller completed her PhD in Cognitive Psychology and Behavioral Neuroscience at the University of California, Los Angeles. Her research interests include memory, attention, and the impacts of technology on learning and on the mind. Welcome to our Dead Ideas podcast, Michelle. I'm delighted to be talking with you today. Oh, so am I. I'm so happy to be here. So I'm just going to briefly set the stage here for this conversation. Longtime listeners may recognize that we've spoken with Michelle in the past, but there's a big reason why I brought her back here today to chat with me. Recently, in the Chronicle of Higher Education, there was a question posed by journalist Beth McMurtry about whether or not institutions of higher education truly value teaching. And she offered a list of signals or things that are routinely seen in universities that show an undervaluing of teaching. For example, the use of underpaid adjuncts who don't have offices even to meet with students or tenure and promotion policies that really don't count teaching, um, poor teaching evaluation practices, for example, or, you know, the fact that many new faculty are warned not to spend too much time on teaching before they get tenure. And this is just a short list. But what interested me about Michelle's response to Beth's query was that Michelle offered her own list and addressed it to faculty on how to tell if your institution is devaluing teaching. And this list of signals can be reverse engineered to serve, I think, as a really helpful starting point for people who want to change their institutional culture. And if you could get your institution to address even one of these issues that Michelle delineated, it could make a huge difference in how the valuing of teaching is being enacted in a very real and very concrete way. So I wanna get Michelle talking um, so that we, those of us, you know, who work in a teaching center or if you're in a provostial role or you're a faculty member, registrar, any of us can put to rest this dead idea that systems change in higher education is not possible. <laughs> so just a quick note, Michelle had some really great ideas and what I've done to get as many of them 
in our conversation as possible is I've sort of bundled them into ones that I thought were related. So I would encourage you to read her R3 newsletter on Substack because it's just really excellent. So here's what Michelle says. Your institution may be a teaching devaluing institution of higher education if it tolerates classroom spaces that are in disrepair, are chronically too hot or cold, or just generally broken down. And I would add, not even physically accessible to all students. And relatedly, when classes are routinely assigned to rooms that don't provide a pedagogical match for the instructor. And the thing I loved about the way Michelle framed this is she noted that classrooms in these states of disrepair may not even register with many people as being problematic because it's so common and it's gone on for so long that people just think that's normal and they expect that. So the idea that classroom spaces are neutral in their impact on teaching and learning is quite a pervasive dead idea. So I'm going to ask Michelle to expand on why these spaces matter so much and why having the right space is something that institutions should value and attend to. Oh, thank you. And, and thank you, by the way, for that introduction and for your very kind words about my Substack newsletter. It is a new project for this new year, and it's just been so rewarding to see how you can we can really engage in this relatively new platform and yes i usually talk about research in the in the arthur newsletter but when i saw um, beth mcmurtry's piece for the chronicle and saw the question she was posing i just I was inspired to to jump in and frankly to editorialize a little bit and if it does get us thinking about some issues that as you point out we may really take for granted in higher education and, and to look at those with fresh eyes in this fresh new year, um, then I, I think that that can be a great outcome. So, so thank you for setting the stage in that way. It just has really started to strike me um, uh, somewhat in my own experience, but I want to make it clear. I'm, I'm, I wasn't really trying to individuate my own institution of higher education. I mean, I've been at my uh, institution, Northern Arizona University, for 23 years now. I've seen a lot of things come and go. So this isn't just like, oh, my gosh, this happened to me in this particular time frame. But I visit a lot of institutions around uh, the country, and that's an amazing privilege, and it does show. So it, it makes it very clear to me, um, just as a side benefit of like, okay, what seems to be some common themes that, oh, this is a recognizable issue from, from my own experience and what uh, what's different. So this really is one, the physical spaces and what we kind of tolerate as far as the quality of those physical spaces and as you rightly point out um, issues of accessibility as well um, so can can all students even enter the classroom even find a, a good uh, place where they can can set up and concentrate and can we all simply be comfortable and and I think it does make an impression on students as well I think when you do come into the assigned classroom and you can say wow 
this classroom is is freezing until noon, and at which point it gets too hot, or you know things like window shades don't work. I mean, it's little little things in a way, but those accrue into an impression, and even if it doesn't consciously register on them or on us. I think it does say a lot. And I mean, there's practical points. I mean, I, I think I've had a few times again, I'm not going to say whether it was here or on some of my travels, but where it's like, okay, you can design an amazing active classroom with all these, you know, wonderfully designed activities. And if it's 85 degrees and we're all falling asleep and it's after lunch, um, wow, that that uh, is not going to take you very far. So this is a real challenge to say, let's look at some things with some fresh eyes. And, you know, here too, I, I, as I tried to stress in the article and I wanted to say in the, in the newsletter, and I wanted to stress here too, it's not that I feel like we have to have this you know very luxurious space or it has to have a certain kind of bells and whistles and whatnot but I think it's very important to compare really kind of on a spectrum of the physical spaces and facilities in an institution where do the teaching spaces stack up relative to the other ones so if you're going to go into i mean we all have the nice administrative boardrooms and those can be you know really well maintained and appointed and that's fine i think that's appropriate but what is the disparity if you were to walk say next door and walk into the classroom where let's say the foundational calculus class or pre-calculus class is being held or psychology 101 the most popular college class out there what is that look like what are the facilities so let's wake up to, to some of that and you mentioned the mat the matter of pedagogical match as well i mean i think that most universities and colleges also have kind of the, the special spaces that might have you know the active learning setup uh, really nice movable furniture maybe special technology and that's wonderful too However, where we can sometimes drop the ball is in the very kind of, you know, nitty gritty issue of who's assigned to teach in that space. Is it being fully used? And is there some consideration of like, okay, how are classes actually designed? And, and at many institutions, that's a pretty big order because maybe nobody really knows. Maybe we have no way of saying, well, what are some of the style differences, some of the different pedagogical demands? I mean, unless it's something very obvious, like, oh, hey, this is a biology lab and we need to dissect things. Um, there perhaps are some other requirements and some optimization that could go on and it just doesn't happen. Nobody sets out, nobody wakes up in the morning and says, I'm going to devalue teaching by, <laughs> by, you know, letting all these balls drop, but they do drop. I think we do see that. Yes, and I think it speaks to a, a legacy of just assuming that the physical environment doesn't impact learning. So it doesn't matter where students are sitting. As long as there's students and an instructor in a space, the students will learn. And we know now there's enormous amounts of research that that's just not true. And that we need to address these kinds of physical structure issues and, you know, maybe improve, like, I don't know, the systems by which classrooms get assigned or have a system where people could request, you know, those special active learning classrooms, right? And some places do, no doubt. But in general, I think these are overlooked systems changes that, that really do need attention. So the next sign that Michelle offered 
that your institution might be devaluing teaching is a blend of some multiple points. So here we go. No one at your university has seriously grappled with the question of how to assess teaching. And even if they did, routine practices like assigning instructors to courses they don't want to teach or aren't prepared to teach would, would confound that assessment. And if we add to this that 100 level courses routinely receive less support than upper division courses and graduate courses, and by the way, these are always the largest enrollment courses, it means that the folks who teach the most students are most at risk with a faulty teaching evaluation system, especially as they are often the non-tenure track instructors. Go, Michelle. These are all interrelated, aren't they? So what should Thank departments, you. schools, or institutions think about? Yes, they sure are, aren't they? And these are some issues which are have been with us for a long time. Again, as a mid-career person who's who spent a long time in one institution and in academia in general, uh, I can look around and say, yeah, this wow, are, have, are we still struggling with this, this issue? And it's a tough one, right? Um, you know, what is quality teaching? What is learning? What is evidence of learning? However, they are not unanswerable questions. And on the one hand, it's been so exciting and amazing in the last, I would say, roughly even like 10 to maybe 12 years just to see how many great ideas and how many actual concrete, tangible advances have been made in getting our arms around this issue of assessing teaching um, and doing so beyond, uh, as McMurtry again raised, the classic student opinion survey. Um, and those, by the way, those started getting popular when I was in graduate school. I saw them come on the scene. Um, I, I, I don't know that they had quite the eh, undermining effect that many critics at the time said they would have, but they are very much a part of the system now. And what do you know? They can only take us so far. We all know it. We all know at this point that there are real major issues um, with individuals who are minoritized um, and disempowered by institutional and social systems and structures. They take an enormous hit through this. So it's perpetuating this in, this enormous uh, this systemic issue at the same time as it, it's really, I think, not taking us to the next level in terms of saying, okay, beyond just kind of the basics of, is this instructor responsive? Or, you know, is 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 class uh, engaging? What is sort of the next level of, hey, what's the difference between a really, really good, um, say, psychology 101 class and one that is tremendously impactful and that sets students up for success and um, gets a wider variety of students, a more diverse range of students reaching, um, attaining goals that, that we never could could really see before for as many students. So making, so, so there is that first of all. And so we do need to be looking at the, the systems for, for making those distinctions. And one of the things that makes that difficult is not necessarily the, you know, uh, just the nature of the issue. Okay, we can't directly see learning. So what is that? It also gets into making some real decisions and making some judgments that are not always going to be 
popular. And especially if we are going to give them some consequence, consequential nature, you know, there's going to be some outcome that happens if the teaching or the design of a particular course is this way or that way. If it's going to make a difference, then not every course is going to reach that A plus level, right? And so institutions and sometimes individual leaders in institutions need to say, here's the system we're going with. And it doesn't mean you have to invent the system. One of, again, one of the great things is that we have so many institutions around the country in parallel who are saying, you know what, we are bringing a new system in. and they're reporting out on it. They're disseminating that. And they're looking at each other and saying, you know what, we're going to borrow this or we're going to take that. That's all wonderful. Um, but it does take leadership oftentimes to say, all right, here's what we chose to go with. And it's not going to be perfect, um, but it is going to take us where we need to go. And it is going to benefit students in the end. So, so there is that. And, and yeah, the rubber really meets the road in these 100 level courses and those 100 level courses, um, I would also kind of challenge faculty as they go into the fall semester, really listen with that great, you know, finely tuned academic ear we have for nuance to say, how do people talk about it? Do they talk about these courses as, ah, oh, I got to get this over with, it's, it's, a, it's a load, it's a burden. And what evidence is it that we really do see them in this really fresh light of like, wow, this is, this is your chance to introduce a large group of students with this great group energy to this amazing discipline, right? So how do we talk about it? Who gets assigned to teach them? I mean, our non-tenure track instructors, even in our relatively new instructors can be amazing. And many are, however, that could be part of a pattern of, and I know many, many years ago when I came into to teaching, they said, well, you know, here's, here's sort of, I think they even used the term poison pill. <laughs> like, all right, you gotta pay some dues. So do you want this one or that one? Whoa. I know. And again, this 23 years ago, I think the statute of limitations is up on that. And we wouldn't see that today. However, that was very clear. And I think there's some vestiges of that. And this whole exciting question of how do we take these arguably most important, most consequential course offerings that we have and make them incredible. That's what even draw, drew me in about 12 years ago to this whole idea of more progressive pedagogy. So this can be an amazing thing, but it's not going to be there. It's not going to happen by itself. What I have seen during my long time in course redesign and pedagogy and looking at that, I it's just like a force of nature that that 100 level course is going to kind of fall down the list of priorities unless it's actively pushed up. And so that's what we need to see as well. Well, that kind of leads into the next point that you made, the next signal of devaluing teaching was that professional development programming for instructors is limited in scope and lacks grounding in the learning sciences. And as I noted on our script, I don't want to be too defensive, but CTLs do do that work. And, and we, of course, do everything in the science of learning. We work on sort of, you know, what approaches are we recommending and why are we recommending this and how can you implement this in your course, in your discipline. But, you know, honestly, not every university has a CTL or maybe they are severely under-resourced 
in some cases. So I'd like for you to share what you're seeing and what you think needs to happen around this to to change that scenario. Because as you noted, you've had some professional development support and even then it's still a lot of work. And so that support is really key to helping instructors make these kinds of changes. You can't, especially for those large classes, you can't just do that by yourself. Right. And I'll, I'll say here, as I've kind of been thinking back over this, um, I would say that really this is the area where I think we're the furthest along of all of these issues. Um, it, this is something that might not be sort of on the, the radar of, of, of many faculty or maybe even some leadership, but the incredible um, progress that's been made, the incredible expansion and growth, not just in size, but but really in uh, focus and grounding in, in learning sciences and other really important kind of uh, intellectual frameworks. This has grown so much in the last 10 years. So I think let's all kind of give a virtual round of applause or thanks to the universe that this has happened and it's largely happened behind the scenes and it's largely happened through the real devotion and commitment and engagement of faculty professional development professionals, and including those who may be in e-learning centers, online course and degree programs, many times those individuals are contributing at a high level to faculty professional development too, even if that's not in their official job title. So this is something that we have really accomplished in, in the academy in a way. And I, I did bring it up, however, as, as sometimes even a source of misconceptions. I say this because actually I'm kind of harking to a research program that has been going on for a number of years with my incredibly dynamic colleague, Kristen Betts, who's uh, looked at well neuromyths. If you if you're familiar with that term, your your uh, listeners are, and, but looking at them in higher education, which uh, previously to her research had not been done as much as it had been in say K through twelve. So so these are kind of basic misconceptions about how people learn and sometimes even about how the brain works um, that that spread especially in education, and we feel that they have a, a real undermining effect as as well on the teaching uh, that we do. So here's the thing is we have surveyed hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people in different professional roles in higher education. And when we asked them, like, where did you get this, this idea that we would argue is, is not really grounded? In fact, where did that come from? Sometimes they will say, I got it from professional development. Now, we aren't there on the scene. We can't, you know, go in like detectives and say, okay, who done it? But this this is uh, something that faculty do continue to say. I think they will they will see it less if, if we do, and I hope we do run this research and keep sampling over years and years. That trend line will go down, and that is what I would predict based on that. That I do visit so many CTLs, and oh my goodness, the leadership and the staff are hundred percent dialed into the the latest research. But you know, here too, it, it, especially if they're under resourced or leadership themselves are not, if, if they're subscribing to Nermis or they're saying, well. You know, I don't really know what the context for this is, but here's a cool idea. Let's just randomly have an event on that. Then you're going to see that that drift. And so um, it, having a healthy 
resourced, high profile, respected CTL. As I said, fortunately, this is something you do see a lot. I think it's the rule rather than the exception, but that's another positive sign. And the flip side is that's a red flag. If you're saying, well, I'm not really sure what our CTL is doing, or they probably have this, uh, this wonderful set of things they could be doing, but they can't because of resource and time constraints. That's, that's another factor. Yeah. I think a really good example of a neuromyth that was widely propagated was learning styles. That one did so much damage. Oh my gosh, people bought into that because it was so intuitively appealing. Of course, students loved it. Like, hey, I, I'm a visual learner, so, or I'm an auditory learner, so I can't really read these, all this textbook stuff. That was enormously damaging to teaching. And still, I still come across it even today. People still mention it or hold on to that idea that there's such a thing of these predetermined learning styles. Oh my goodness. What? Yeah, this is like a fantastic example. And you know what? Your impression also backed up by our uh, our surveys. Um, so Dr. Dr. Betts and I, this is one of the ones that we definitely zero in on. And, and it is, it, it's like this, almost this, this indicator. Um, so when we, when we gather the data, we kind of look at that one in particular to say, all right, this, this is the one and, and it should trend down over time, but it is still surprisingly high. And here's the thing that I think is also really great about that example that you brought up is that the motivation to say, oh my gosh, I'm going to go to this great workshop on learning styles is going to tell me how to, you know, uh, adjust my teaching around this concept. Nobody signs up for that because they're like, oh, here's a, here's a myth. <laughs> here's something that's, that's kind of pseudoscience. They do it because they really genuinely want to help students and whoever brought the speaker in, they may have, you know, quite reasonably not been an expert in this area. They said, well, this looks good, sounds good. And here's this great motivation and goal to, you know, open up these different disciplines and areas and levels of achievement to more students. And, and this is great. We can make things more personalized and I'm sure it ties into brain science in some way. So let's tap into that. It comes from a good place, but that gives it a lot of momentum, right? And you're absolutely right. Once it's in there, it can be hard to have folks let it go, especially once it starts to be intuitive. There goes all this very scarce, sometimes energy and resources that could be going to something else in course design. So uh, yeah, absolutely. So you and I can agree right here and now on this podcast to say learning styles are a dead idea so yeah. let's just put that to bed once and for all. No yes. more learning styles. <laughs> here, here to that. Yes. Yes. If you have just a little bit of energy to think about teaching, look at universal design for learning. Let's go that route instead of learning styles. <laughs> yes. Amen to that. So on question four, I'm thinking that we do agree 100% that we need institutional support to value and reward instructors for working with teaching centers to signal expectations for effective teaching practices, which you just mentioned, you know, that that's been a struggle for many institutions to have those conversations on what constitutes effective 
student-centered, equitable teaching practices. Um, and these institutional pushes and policies can encourage schools and departments to promote large-scale change so that all students can expect the best instruction and equitable learning opportunities. But here, I'm going to touch the third rail here, but what happens with academic freedom? <laughs> In many institutions, it's defined as the right to teach what you want, how you want. And I've heard faculty say uh, once in a while, like, it infringes on my academic freedom to have to think about inclusive teaching. Right. How do we walk this line to show that it really isn't about, we're not trying to attack academic freedom, or, and we're not prescribing that you have to teach in this one way? Right. Yeah, I, and I, on the one hand, I, I want to qualify that although I deeply respect uh, and value the academic freedom, I have to have some humility here and say I don't consider myself an expert on it. That said, I had to grapple with this as well as somebody who uh, quite some years ago, but uh, it was quite the experience I uh, helped uh, put together and implement pretty large scale, actually quite large scale um, initiative on my own campus, the First Year Learning Initiative, which did seek to completely leave uh, alone the, the what of teaching because it was cross-disciplinary. I mean, I'm not going to walk into somebody's course outside of my discipline and say, oh, no, 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 don't say, you know, don't cover that unit first. How could I do that, even if I wanted to? But to very strongly address the how, to say these courses that are part of this program will have to some degree that we agree on these specific features and they will not have these other specific features. So it is a tough one. I, I think that we can, um, I, I think that reiterating just how you put it, that the what is up to you, it is the how, but also to, to have to, to respect as well that faculty like myself have been around for a while. We we also tend to be veterans of the latest buzzword of the latest like it's this thing. <laughs> it's a you know it's technique X or you know concept. Right, right. Y. fair Everybody enough. just has to do it. We're all gonna. Yeah. I'm not picking here on purpose. I I don't know flip classrooms. I I think it's great, but to come in and say okay, this is the thing. That, of course, is going to lead to faculty saying, well, how do I check right, or exactly. how can I, you know, push back and not do it and see if see if anything happens as a result. So you also have to say, well, here are some parameters. Um, here's the end goal. Here's what we want. And then create some flexibility about how we get there. Yeah. So it is difficult. It is messy. So, you know, there there is that, but I, I realize that there is the, the tension there. I will say, too, as a veteran of, of that, you know, practical experience, another thing that if it's, if we're looking at a program that encompasses, say, one discipline or one type of course, as our initiative did, it may be reasonable, not easy, but I think quite reasonable to say, all right, well, if these features of, say, an inclusive classroom or a more supportive classroom, an active learning oriented classroom, if that is simply not 
going to be a fit? I mean, it doesn't serve our students after all to have a faculty member in front of the class saying, well, I had to do this thing and I don't like it. <laughs> that won't work either. So it may be reasonable to say, well, this type of class is not for you. Um, and we can find a different kind of class where there is a better match between the style your style and the aims and particular parameters of this course. That is really, really hard. It's even hard for me to say it, but, but I think that's what we do need to say if we are going to say, yeah, we're going to do this and not that in these types of classes. Yeah, that's, that makes total sense. And I really thank you for that very thoughtful answer. All right, last one. You used a phrase that I just loved, institutional courage. Could you please share a little bit about that with our audience? Oh, yeah. I reached that kind of as I was grappling with like, why not? I mean, some of these are really basic things like thermostats and, you know, meeting accessibility requir requirements. What can be so difficult? And sometimes just delving into the why uh, does reveal um, the bigger the bigger issues. And so this idea of institutional courage, as I said, nobody wakes up in the morning and says, I'm going to kind of, you know, push, push all the first year students to the bottom of the priority list. I'm going to exploit contingent faculty. Nobody does that. But over time, what accrues is this lack of courage. And, and as I kind of have been thinking about it, you know, institutional courage in some ways is, is even easier than individual courage. I think when we think in our own lives, doing something courageous, that means, you know, putting ourselves at risk and handling the possibility or the reality of some really tough consequences. And not all of that is even true of institutional courage. I think it, it a lot of it just comes down to decisions. As I said, it even just to, to take the one example of what are what is your institution going to do to develop better ways of evaluating and, and hopefully supporting improvements in teaching? What are they going to do? Well, that means you got to pick something and go with it. I mean, there, there are, there are so many systems out there and it takes the leader to say, well, We've thought about it. Think about it for a little amount of time, a lot amount of time. You can get a lot of input, a little bit of input. Who cares? But once you're there to say, this is what we're going to do, and this is what the system will look like, and knowing perfectly well that there will be all kinds of pushback. Of course, people will say, well, why did we do it this way? Or why are we doing this at all? And it takes institutional courage to say, we have done this and the decision is made. And uh, that is what is absolutely required. And I think that's where we get into trouble is where we do kind of try to have it both ways. And that's that's the dead idea here as well is like, well, I can just make a very strongly worded policy statement that we're going to have inclusive teaching or we're going to we're going to have universal design for learning. I'm going to put that on the Web and that'll do it. That's not going to do it. Very big dead idea. And, you know, I riffed a little bit in the piece in what I, I think a lot of people, many people have found incredibly inspirational Maya Angelou's take on courage in which she kind of tied it to consistency, that we can do great things, but we can't do them consistently unless we're willing to, you know, face consequences sometimes, face pushback. And it, there's a little bit of a similarity here too. I mean, at the end of the day, yeah, I think it's great that we're at a point in history 
where we can look around and say, oh, really great classes and really great teaching, exceptional teaching. We're going to applaud that. That that wasn't always true. So that's super. But it's a dead idea to say that that's where we stop. It is another thing to say, and you know what? All the courses in this particular program or maybe at the whole institution are going to look a particular way. They're going to have particular features. Yes, the standout's wonderful, applaud them, but that doesn't take the courage. It takes the courage to sit with everybody else and say, well, you may not be at that, at that you know, super exemplary level, but what does really good teaching performance look like? And how are we gonna keep advancing that year after year after year? That's where the courage part comes in. That's what I think. Yeah, so it's both courage and tenacity. I think. <laughs> Absolutely. All right. Well, thank you so much, Michelle. We're so grateful for your participation in our seventh season of Dead Ideas. Oh, you as well. What an honor to be here. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please visit our website where you can find any resources mentioned in the episode ctl.columbia.edu slash podcast. Please like us, rate us, and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Dead Ideas is produced by Stephanie Ogden, Laura Nicholas, John Hanford, and Michael Brown. Our theme music is In the Lab by Immersive Music. <laughs>